I've got cancer. We lost the baby. My dad said I'd never make it. I feel so hopeless. My wife just left my kids. I can't win. The doctor says I've there's no cure. I just want out. Our lives, so beautiful, but so broken. Time after time, we try and piece them back together again, only to find ourselves right back where we started. A life buried by circumstances, pain, depression, disease, and failure. What shall become of us? Are we slaves to the pit that surrounds us? How can we get out? Is there any way out? JFC, want to welcome all of you here. Glad that you're joining us uh, today. Want to, uh, with all of our campuses, welcome them too. Not just here at um, at Lone Tree, but Highlands Ranch and Castle Rock and Lakewood. Those that live stream us and those that'll listen later on this week or later on this month, however you tune in, and however you're hearing the message, we sure are glad you're part of our family. Uh, on your seat, you will find the notes, and if you want to grab those, you'll pick them up. You can follow along at all of our campuses, whether you're watching live or via the video right now or listening via the CD, it's all the same. If you happen to get the CD and want a copy of the notes, and maybe this is a good segue into two things, um, our website, jfc.org, everything that we teach and that we have is always, you can always go there and everything that we teach you can find for free. We always archive it on there and that includes the notes for all of the messages. So for instance, if you were to only pick up the CD, wanted to see a copy of the notes, you could go in there and always get the notes. And because it is the end of our series, say that you were interested in going back and maybe picking up some of the things that we've talked about that you missed, always go back on our website and everything is available on there, no charge all the time. Um, we are talking about pitfalls and sort of our tagline has been, you can see it right behind me, I just want out. And so we've been talking that pitfalls really are a part of life, but because they are a part of life, we feel that the Bible teaches us a lot about how to handle those things, and that just because we go through them, we do not have to be beaten by them. You agree with that statement? And if we do have to deal with them, then we should learn how to deal with them. How do we overcome? How can we still win, even if we have to go through difficult things? And so I guess uh, as a point of reference, that's what the series has been about. Now, uh, over the past few weeks, a lot of things have been taught and said. Here's sort of a quick recap. Uh, here, here, here would just be a few things that I pinpointed in my notes. They're not in yours, but in mine. Pits may be a part of life, but you don't have to stay there. You may up, end up in a pit from time to time, and here's what we said. You're either pushed in, you, are, you jump in, you fall in, but however you got there, you don't have to stay there. Two ways out, you either climb out or God delivers you out of them. Uh, we, we said these things here, the devil cannot make you stay in a pit, but God can't make you leave a pit. You have to decide, enough is enough, and I'm going to do something about this pit. We also, in the very first week, said this, and I haven't brought it up again, but I thought I would reference it real quick. How do you know if you're in a pit? I gave three quick ways. Number one, you will feel stuck in life. If you've ever felt stuck, that's a great sign that you're in a pit. Number two, you feel powerless. When people find themselves in a pit. No one wants to be there. Here's the problem with it. The enemy lies to us very well, convinces us that there's nothing that can be done about it, that our circumstances have beaten us. But the truth of the matter is you may feel powerless, but get the word. It's only a feeling. How many of you have come to the conclusion that your feelings, while they may be actual do not have to be true did you hear me your feelings may be actual but they don't have to be true and in fact one of the things we need to learn as believers is not to live our life by our feelings we've got to learn to live by what's truth and last but not least when you're in a pit a way that you can know is that you will feel vulnerable I also made this statement the problem with a pit is that they are so poorly lit you cannot see well you cannot see around you, you cannot see, <laughs> you, 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 what, the tendency when you cannot see out is that you look in. When people spend an inordinate amount of time looking inward, how many of you recognize we can end up with a bad attitude? It's part of the problem with the pit, you've got to learn to look up. Your only way out is up. So tonight, that's what we're going to finish this 
series on. I, I even though titled this, look at what we're talking about tonight. The final message in the series is the pit of failure. Even though we're going to talk about failure here for a few minutes, my hope is that when it's all said and done, it would not be failure that you have learned about. It would not be failure that you have connected to, but the idea of how to overcome failure. So I put in your notes at the transition point, we may talk about the pit of failure, but failure is something that we can all relate to. It's what, it, it is the common denominator, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, no matter how old you are, yes or no, we have all failed at something in our lives. And if you, if you, if you don't raise your hand, if perchance you sit in tonight and go, I have never failed at one thing, then, then I probably won't be able to help you. Except for when we talk about lying at some point <laughs> later on. And then maybe we'll, we'll come back. But I, just, just to say, here's the common denominator of every person in this room. Regardless of your age, regardless of your background, regardless of your education, regardless if this is your first time here or it is you've been here for years, you, you would find that a common denominator is that everybody in here has been touched by failure at some point. If that's true, then here's what is, is really necessary. Let's deal with that. Let's figure out how to handle that so that it doesn't have to define us. And I put in here, right here, something that somebody that I respect, that's been a mentor to me, said this years and years ago, and it just stuck with me. They said, John, if you want to impress someone, talk about your success. But if you want to impact someone, talk about where you struggle. Why? Because if you stand up and you talk about your successes, while people may go, wow, most people don't relate to someone else's successes. They just admire it. It's okay to admire something, but we're not impacted by what we admire. We just admire it. We just think, wow, when someone talks about where they struggle, we relate to it. And when they can say, this is how I've overcome it, how I got through it, how it didn't beat me, everyone else then can be impacted by that message. So if you want to impress someone, talk about your success. If you want to impact them, talk about where you've personally struggled. At our creative team meeting this week, Pastor Terry looked across the table and he said, John, can you remember a time where you have failed? Now, I'm going to do this to you. Can you remember a time where you failed, Larry? And here's what happens. As soon as you put it on somebody, it's tough to remember right on the spot a time that you failed. Think about it. But gave me... 15 minutes after I left the restaurant, I could think of like 700 things <laughs> that I have failed at. And I, well, interestingly enough, one that, what, that, that, that came to me, and, and I wrote it in the notes right here. I, I, I'm going to share it. It's embarrassing to me. It is nothing that I'm proud of. It is nothing, I mean, I, I would hope that everyone in here would realize I'm not sharing this because I would set it on a pedestal or I think it's good. I'm sharing it because it was a lousy failure, something I am ashamed of, something, though, that God was very graceful and merciful with me, redeemed me from it. Maybe you can relate to it. I put it down in your notes. Uh, I had a terrible failure at a time in my life where I denied Christ. I denied Christ. And let me tell you this, this story. I, I, I grew up a Catholic kid, and I grew up knowing about Christ but I didn't know Christ. It's definition. I, I was taught who the Father, who the Son, who the Holy Spirit were as far as theology. But no one, now this was my experience. This is not a, a bashing of the Catholic Church under any circumstance. In fact, I went to a Catholic funeral this week. I thought it was one of the finest funerals I have ever attended in my life. It was a very life-giving funeral. They, the gospel was explained at the funeral. It, they did a fine job with it. But the Catholic Church that I grew up in did not ever, no one ever took the time to say, do you want to know Jesus personally? They just taught about him theologically. Does, does that make sense? So, so this was my experience. So I grew up that way. And when I was in my teenage years, my late teenage years, somebody asked me that question and got into a conversation with me and here's what happened. I recognized my need for God, and somebody prayed with me, and I, here's what I asked for. I asked for God's mercy, much like I do for, for you at the end of our message. I ask, is there anyone here that wants an opportunity to know God? Not know about him, but know him. 
You, you want to ask him, and you, you need his mercy, you need his grace, you need to be forgiven, you want his life. I, I mean, I say all of those things different ways, I, as many different ways as I can to try to, to try to get someone here to recognize their need for him. Whatever it takes to get the light to go on. And somebody just asked me that at one point, got into a conversation, engaged me, and, and I said yes, and they prayed with me. And I, here's what I believe, Jesus said that, that a person must be born again. That is not a religious right word or a 20th century word. That was Jesus' words. And, and I was born again at that time in my life. God gave me a new spirit on the inside of me. But just because you get a new spirit doesn't mean you know everything or that you understand everything or that you can handle everything. How many, how many of you have ever, you ever had that experience where God comes into your life and then you're challenged on it and you fail? You ever been there? So I, I was born again. And here was the crowd that I came out of. Came out of a lot of, uh, it, was a, it was a crowd that did drugs. And it was a crowd that lived for a party life. And here was what happened to me. I got radically born again. And everybody that I ran with had heard about it. And I was teased and I was laughed at and I was mocked about it. And I, I did pretty well initially. But there was a guy that... that that I respected, and a guy that, that I sort of looked up to, a guy that I, I partied with, and a guy one-on-one um, -on -one said, hey, I heard you became a Christian. But he didn't say it like in a, in a nice way. He said it like he was going to kill me or something if it was true. And I said, well, where'd you hear that? And he said, so-and-so. So I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And I, he, he walked away. And within like a millionth of a second, have you ever known when you've grieved God? I'll tell you, one of the ways you know you're born again, if you sin and it doesn't bother you, you may not be born again. You may not know God. Listen to me. If you know God, when you sin, just because you're born again, it does not mean you won't sin, but it will ruin you forever for sinning. Because once you do it, you are no longer proud of it, happy about it. You are no longer okay with it. You're not content with it. I did it, and I knew in a millisecond what I had done was grieving to God. I knew it was, it was wrong. I knew it was chicken. I knew it had no backbone to it. I got in my car. By the time I got to my house, which was maybe five minutes later, I was crying. I was broken. I told the Lord before I ever even got out of my door, I will never do that again. I will never deny you. I will. I don't take away salvation. All the things started going through my head. I go into my house. I get on the telephone. I call the kid. I get his mom on the phone. Said, I, I need to speak to so-and-so. She said, well, he, 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 he can't talk right now. And I said, well, I got a message for him. She said, what is it? I said, tell him everything he heard about me is true. I said, tell him that I'm a believer. Tell him that I will never, ever party with him again. It was a little over the top. It was a little, and I'm not just preaching. It was true story. She's just like, I, maybe writing it all down. I'm repeating things to her. Tell him. Let him know. <laughs> I was so, so sorry. And I look back on that time now, even at 19, I, I, it grieves me even to think about doing that then. In the Bible, we read about a time where Christ's own disciples experienced that very same failure. Matthew 26, 35, Peter declared these words, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. All the other disciples said the same thing. Not that much later, Christ is arrested. Do you remember what happened? Jesus looked at Peter right after this statement and said, Peter, be careful because the devil is asked to sift you, but I'm praying for you. But before the, roast, the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. The Bible tells in John's gospel that Peter denied Christ three times and they looked at each other. Can you imagine the look, looking into Christ's eyes, denying him like that? The Bible says that Peter went outside and wept bitterly. I'm going to tell you something. I know those tears. I know what it feels like 
to so let him down, to deny him, to, to recognize how much he loved me, but then to deny that to somebody else. To recognize what he did for me publicly, but then the shame that I brought to him publicly. Now, can I say, how many of you are very grateful that God is merciful? Amen. And that God, God doesn't send a lightning bolt to kill you when you blow it? There wouldn't be many of us here to talk or to share or to say anything. Here's, here's where I'll go with this tonight. I just put in the notes some facts about failure. Facts about failure. And while I don't want to dwell on the issue of failure in and of itself, I think that it's a powerful understanding of how God can use failure in our life. And so let's just jump in. First, can you agree with the statement, God uses people who failed? Maybe a better way to say it is, are you glad that God uses people who failed? Maybe a better qualifying statement is, how many of you have failed and still want to be used by God. I think what you need to understand, I said this to our staff downstairs right when we went into prayer, right after we were done with prayer. I said, we, we were praying for you, and we were praying for all the services at all the campuses, and we were praying in particular that people would know God's grace and mercy. That they would really know His grace and mercy. And I just made this statement sort of off the cuff. I said, Here's, here is the good thing about failure. The way to know God's grace and mercy is to fail because if you have never failed, you don't know his mercy. If you've never struggled, you, you've never tasted God's forgiveness. But if you have, you understand very quickly how that failure is the very thing that God uses in order to teach us about his grace and mercy. And so I put in your notes, God uses people who have failed. When I think about it through scripture, the Bible is full of every character other than Jesus. Check it out for yourself. Every character in the Bible other than Jesus, at some point, the Bible writes about a failure that they had. And it is in their failure that you see the most significant event take place. Think about it. It was not in their successes that we look at that person and go, oh, wow. It was in their failure that we relate most to them because we see where God was merciful and we're able to connect our own failure to the mercy of God. I think David is probably a character everyone can recognize. David had both good and bad things. David was an adulterer. It led to murder. I wrote this down. I, I thought this was interesting, something the Holy Spirit showed me. Let me give you a progression of failure, how the devil uses failure. Three things will happen to bring failure into your life. If you are a believer, the first step to a failure is to be distracted. He will distract you. Something will come along in your life where you will be distracted all of a sudden. It, it may be a person. It may be, uh, it, it could be a job. It could be a thing. It doesn't matter. But you will become distracted. If the enemy can distract you, he has step one. After distraction, addiction. Distract the person, addict them. When I say addict, don't think drugs. Don't think alcohol. Think in terms of something that fills their life where they become distracted. They're, they're walking the path towards doing the thing that God called them to do. The enemy distracts them, and it becomes an addiction in their life where they begin to serve that thing with all, all that's inside of them. Distraction, addiction, destruction. Any person that ends up in a huge failure did not take a step overnight into destruction. They were distracted, they became addicted, and it led to destruction. Think about it. No person just, hey, let me, how, how do I mess my life up? Take that step. It doesn't work that way. A distraction, an addiction, and then destruction. David, when it came to the idea of adultery, and I've taught that, that scripture many times where David, at the time when kings go out to war, David remained behind in Jerusalem. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And that had gone on for a long period of time in his life. He was distracted. The Bible says that he walked on his roof in the middle of the night and he saw a woman bathing and he decided, I want her. He called for her and he brought her, Bathsheba, to himself. Distraction, addiction. She became pregnant in order to cover it up. He brought her husband home, and he wanted her husband to sleep with her because he thought, if I can just get him to sleep with her, it covers up everything. The problem was, this guy was so dedicated, as long as his men were on the battlefield, he would not go in and sleep with his wife. So he slept in the doorway of his house. So David had to come up with another plan, and here's what he did. He put him in the most heated part of the battle, knowing if I put him there, he will likely be killed. And guess what? He was killed. So even though David didn't murder him, by implication, David murdered him. 
The story is taught that a little prophet, an obscure prophet named Nathan, comes in and calls David on it, and David repented. It's a wonderful story, but nonetheless, it was the progression of a distraction, addiction, and it led to destruction. If you don't know about the destruction, here's the deal. We don't think, we don't think that our sin is such a horrible thing. But David's sin required the life of his child. Even though he repented, that child that Bathsheba bore died. I want to throw this into the message tonight just to qualify something. Because if I'm going to teach about grace, the one thing about grace you don't want to teach is, go ahead and fail. Go ahead and blow. Go ahead and intentionally sin because God's grace covers everything. You need to understand something. God's grace does cover everything, but there are consequences for our sin. There is a balance to the message. There is no such thing as some sloppy, agape love. Your sin cost Jesus his life. Did God still love you? Absolutely. Nothing separates us from the love of Christ. But our sin still costs the ultimate price. God uses people who failed. David was an unbelievable man. The Bible records him as a man after God's own heart. David committed adultery, ultimately committed murder, but he repented. The same woman that he had adultery with got pregnant again. This child's name was Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. Solomon was the richest man who ever lived. Solomon wrote incredible scripture. While God is absolutely merciful, the sin still had an impact. I wrote down David. You could write after his name, adultery and murder. You could also write after his name, Solomon, and then Solomon built the temple. While I just taught you the progression of failure, distraction, addiction, and destruction, let me give you the progression of mercy, repentance, forgiveness, restoration. Repentance, forgiveness, restoration. God is in the restoring business, but that does not cover our sin. Did you hear me? There are consequences. The reality of consequences, the Bible it's full of it. Samson, remember him? A he-man with a she-weakness. <laughs> write that down, that's a keeper. Freebie from the mind of Pastor John. Get your pen out, write that down. A he-man with a she-weakness. <laughs> Here's what the Bible said about Samson. When I was, when I was a kid, I remember... In a, in a catechism class, being handed a picture of what Samson looked like. And it was a picture of a strong man. How many of you ever saw that picture? Samson was not a muscle-bound roid guy. That's what the Bible said about him. When the Holy Spirit would come upon him, he was able to do incredible feats. If the Holy Spirit wasn't on him, he was as normal a person as you could find. When the Holy Spirit would come upon him, he would have a supernatural strength about him. Without that, he was as normal as the day was long. How do we know that to be true? Because Delilah asked him, what is the secret of your strength? Remember what it was? He, had, he made a Nazarite vow. One of it was to not cut his hair. When they cut his hair, he lost his strength. So he was not this muscle-bound guy who could just turn that on and turn that off at will. The Holy Spirit had to come upon him in order for him to be able to act in those things right there. Samson was always a guy who played it close to the edge. Here was, here was three things about the Nazarite vow. You couldn't touch a dead body, you couldn't drink alcohol, and you couldn't cut your hair. Read about Samson in Scripture. The first time we read about him, here's what he's doing. He is walking by the vineyards. What weren't you supposed to do with your Nazarite vow? What? Okay, let me try this again. Three things in the Nazarite vow you're not supposed to do. Drink alcohol, cut your hair, touch a dead body. The very first time in Scripture we read about Samson, he is walking by the vineyards of Timnath. He's thirsty. He finds a dead lion carcass. 
What's the other thing that a Nazarite is not supposed to do? Touch a dead body. There is a honeycomb in it, and he reaches inside the dead carcass to grab the honeycomb. Every time we read about Samson, he was right on the edge of how he lived his life. The Bible says that he walked into Gaza, that Gaza. He walked into Gaza, saw a woman, and dropped his pants. That's what it says. I mean, what kind of restraint is that? I mean, that's, that's just not a lot of restraint. <laughs> There's a picture for you, bro. Huh? It's burned on your mind forever. Is that, what kind of restraint is that? That's no restraint. And yet, God would use this guy. Yes or no? The Bible says the Holy Spirit would come upon him. He would do all these incredible feats. He would fight the Philistines. I mean, he would kill 600 guys at a time. This is an incredible individual. Here's Samson's life. He married a prostitute. And she, I don't know how this works exactly. Here, get this story. She would nag him, what's the secret of your strength? And so he lied to her. He said, if you bind me with a certain kind of rope, I'll lose my strength. So he fell asleep. She binds him with a certain kind of rope and then calls the Philistines in and says, wake up, the Philistines are upon you. And he wakes up and he busts the rope and he kills them all. Now, at that point, would you not think that maybe your wife is not on your side? <laughs> I mean, would there be any, any signal in your head that goes, what's going on here? This happens three times. Three times. The first time, maybe it's an accident. Second time, you're just dumb. So the third time, the Bible says, she nagged him so much, he finally gave in, and he said, if you cut my hair, while he was sleeping, she cuts his hair. And she tells him, wake up, the Philistines are upon you. He gets up to go out like before, and this is what the Bible says, he did not know that the Holy Spirit had left him. They may be the saddest words in all of Scripture. He did not know that the Holy Spirit had left him. I would just say to you, the only reason I'm even teaching this right here, is I'm, I'm, about to, I'm about to just go crazy talking about God's grace, but I don't want anyone in the room to make any mistake. Grace is not some sloppy thing. You go out and do whatever you want to, and God's grace covers it all. The problem with sin is that there are consequences for our sin. And while God is merciful, and God forgives us, and God restores us, His restoration doesn't take away a consequence. And then here's what happens. We get a consequence in our life, and we're just like, God, deliver me from the consequence. And when God doesn't, it's not because he's not good. God is a restorer, but he may allow the consequence to come to your life. Sometimes we're eating a consequence and angry about it. Put in your notes, all through the Bible, you'll find this to be true. Moses, Moses was an incredible individual, but Moses lost his temper was not allowed to enter into the promised land. You know, for years, I would read that scripture. Maybe you are not versed in the Bible. Maybe you don't even know who Moses is, the leader of the children of Israel. He led two million people. He did, he, the Bible said he was the meekest man that ever lived. In my mind, what qualifies you for meekness is it's just power under control. No matter what was said about him, he never lost his temper until one day. God told him, take your staff, and hit the rock. Moses took his staff out of anger and struck the rock. He lost his temper. And God said, because you lost your temper, you do not get to go into the promised land. That bothers me. That bothers me. Why would God be so hard and unjust? And here's, the Lord showed it to me one day. When you're the leader... You represent God in a way that nobody else does. And because of that, the way they see him, Moses, is the way they see God. And that leader then is held to a higher standard than everybody else is held. Moses didn't miss heaven, but he missed the promise. Because he didn't represent God the way that a leader is supposed to represent God. Peter... God restored Peter and built the church on Peter's back, but it did not take away the fact that Scripture records Peter's denial, does it? 
And the one thing that you will read in all Gospels is the account of Peter's denial of Christ. And when Jesus restored Peter, he asked him three times, do you love me? Three times it hurt Peter. Hurt him. Barnabas, what an obscure scripture it is to talk about Barnabas. Barnabas was known as the son of encouragement. Here's how Barnabas' life ended, though. He disagreed with Paul, went his own way, and we never read about him again. It is possible to go your own way, do your own thing, and never be heard of again. I wonder if he's wandering around heaven right now. Who knows? Ultimate issue here, though, when I talk about facts with failure, is that God uses people who failed. He has to, because here's the truth of the matter. He takes a perfect gift, and he puts it into an imperfect person, and that's the church. Let me say it over here. He takes a perfect gift, and he puts it into an imperfect person, and that's the church. You want to know what the, thank God is right, because if he doesn't do that, there's no church. If he doesn't take a perfect gift and put it into an imperfect vessel, none of us are qualified. If he only puts it into perfect, flawless vessels, raise your hand if that's you. Are you not paying attention, sleeping, or trying to intentionally aggravate me right now? Yes. Marcus like, that's me. Wait, what did you say? <laughs> not this not anymore. <laughs> Facts about failure. Listen to this. Let me teach you quickly the difference between failure and failing. It's not it's not the semantic. It's far more than that. The difference between failure and failing. Here's how I would define it. What I did versus who I am. Here's a question. We had a great discussion about this with our entire staff. What defines you? What defines you? For some people, their failure is what defines them. When they talk about their life, the big failure that they had, a divorce, a financial failure, some type of a, of a breaking of the law, or something that someone did to them. Maybe they didn't have anything. It wasn't at their hands. It was at the hands of somebody else, but it was a failure, and that defines them. When they talk, they are stuck at that point in their life. Have you ever met the person who is so defined by the failure that you can go away for years at a time not talking to them, and as soon as you end up in a conversation with them 12, 15, 20 years later, they're at the same place they were when you left them last time? Do you know what I'm talking about? They talk about the same thing. They're at the same place. It's like, it's like you're in a time warp. You end up in the same place. That failure so clearly defines their life. Okay, here's what I would say. It, it, this, is, this is how the enemy works. For a believer, then we go, it is not a failure that defines me. It is success that defines me. God has delivered me and I, I'm, I'm going to say something to you. If success or failure defines you, you still live in the same tree. They're both wrong. If you choose to let success define you, you still live your life this way because success doesn't happen every day. And it doesn't happen in every situation. Christ must define you. Who he says you are and your identity in him. And here's, this is so important. Please listen to me. If your relationship isn't based on what he says about you, but based on what you do for him, or how you perform for him, how you pray, how much you give, how you go to church, how you live out the Bible, then you're basing your success, you're basing your value on your performance. And I'm telling you, friend, right now, you are not, you are like this. Your value, your worth, your identity has to be birthed and found only in what Christ says about you. We are not defined by our sin or our success, we are defined by our Savior. Here's a truth to remember. It's the difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation connects your identity to sin. You are a liar. You are a thief. When somebody blows it and it is said to them, you are, we take the sin and then we name them by it. You're a liar. We're condemning them. We're connecting their character with the sin. Conviction, the difference is night and day, life and death. Condemnation is to 
connect their identity to the sin. You're a liar. You're a thief. You're a loser. Conviction does the opposite. Conviction reminds a person when you sin, you're not acting like your true self. So that when they lie, what should be said about them is, that's not who you are. Why are you doing that right now? If they were to take something, it would be, why are you doing that? This is not who you are. I can't believe you would do something like that. That makes sense? If you have a kid, very important, never, ever identify the character of the kid with the sin that they're committing. Separate the two issues. What does God do for you? He always reminds you that's not who you really are. Christianity doesn't come in and impose itself with some type of like take a rubber band and every time you sin, pop yourself. Christianity is not trying to trying to go against your nature. Christianity is a new nature that's put inside of you so that when you obey the new nature, you don't sin. You're not trying not to sin. You don't sin when you obey the new nature. You understand that? I wrote down in the notes, here's how I would phrase maybe the condition of humanity. We are badly broken, we are fatally flawed, but we are immeasurably precious. Can you agree with that statement? Badly broken, fatally flawed, but immeasurably precious. 1 John 4, 19, this is a scripture that gives us the order of preference in space and time. We love him because he, what? First loved us. Anybody that says... I found God doesn't get it. You weren't smart enough to find God. Your mind wasn't looking for God, and you didn't happen to stumble upon him one day. If you know God, it's because God got your attention, friend. God is the pursuer and the initiator and always takes the first place in the relationship, meaning what the scripture is saying, we love him because he first revealed himself to us. We love him because he chose us. We love him because he went after us. We didn't go after him and then God responded to us. We know him because we responded to his pursuit of us, if that makes any sense. Okay, so what are you trying to teach? Ultimately, this is how I know God is full of grace and mercy. Nothing we did got God's attention. God created us loved us, and came after us. All we can do is say yes to this great pursuit that he has of us. When I say that your value is found in your Savior, this is exactly what I'm talking about. He went after you because you are so, you may be broken. You, you may be everything that I wrote right there. You, you may be badly broken, fatally flawed, but to him you are immeasurably precious. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he, what? He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. I'll give you the last one. You've really been set free from failure. John chapter 8 verse 36. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The word free in the Greek is the word eleutheros. It means one who isn't a slave. Here's the implication. A slave has no choice about what they do. A slave has to do what they have to do. But if you're not a slave, you get a choice. Yes or no? Okay, here's where it becomes important. I'm going to read a scripture to you. I'm going to show you what it means to be free. In Acts chapter 16, 25 and 26, Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel. They made the enemy mad. He stirred up some folks against them. They were beaten, thrown into prison. Here was their response to prison. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Stop. When was the last time your response to a pit was to sing and to praise at midnight? I do some of the best whining in history at around midnight. 
Anybody get what I'm saying? It is usually between one and three, I can whine like nobody's business. The other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison was shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The story is a powerful story. The jailer came in to see what was going on, thinking that Paul and Silas had escaped, grabbed his sword to kill himself because Roman law was, if you let a prisoner escape, you're tortured and then put to death. It was better for him to take his life by his own hand. But Paul yelled out, don't kill yourself. We're all here. The guy walked in, Paul witnesses to him, he gets born again, and this is what he does. I want you to tell my family about it. So he takes Paul and Silas to his house, all of his family members confess Christ that night. That's revival. That's a powerful thing. If the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. Eleutheros, you're not a slave. Listen to this, let me try to connect it so you understand this. If you're born again, when you're in a pit, you are not a slave out of control, and the pit determines your life. Because Christ has made you free. No matter what pit you end up in, you get to choose, because you're not a slave, what you're going to do in the pit. You get to decide. Listen, I wrote it down this way. See if this makes any sense. Don't waste a good prison sentence. <laughs> yes or no? Don't waste it. If we end up in difficult circumstances, if our father is killed, if it appears that all hell has broken loose in our lives, we are not a slave who now has no control. We get to choose what we do with the pit that we were pushed into. Here is what I would suggest. Sometime around midnight, begin to shout and to sing and to bless his name. You don't get to decide whether or not you go into a pit. You get to decide whether or not you're coming out of a pit. You don't get to decide whether or not stuff happens. You get to decide whether or not it defines you. You don't get to decide whether or not life has difficulties. You get to decide whether or not your life is going to be defined by all the difficulties. The enemy has no remedy for the one who is not a slave, who takes the prison experience and begins to worship and praise and look up and allows God to deliver them from the pit. Amen. There is, listen to me. Christianity is not, serving God is not a force field that keeps stuff from happening to you. You can't give enough money, say enough prayers, chant, come up with a formula to keep stuff around you from, stuff happens. That bumper sticker was stolen from believers 2,000 years ago. <laughs> stuff happens. You get to decide though what you do with it. That is the truth. The Bible never promises that you won't go through difficulty. In fact, it does say that in this world you will have trouble. But Jesus promised, fear not, I've overcome the world. What does that mean? He is our pattern. The cross didn't beat Christ. The devil didn't conquer Christ. The last enemy to be defeated, the Bible says clearly, is death. Death didn't win in the situation. Jesus thoroughly handled every pit that came his way, didn't he? He is our pattern for how we live life. There is no guarantee that you don't end up in a pit. I'm trying to give you the way out of the pit. I'm trying to tell you what you do despite the pit. Look up. Find God. Worship him anyway. You're not a slave who has no choice. You're not a slave without control. If the sun made you free, you can decide right now what you're going to do in the pit that you're in. Listen to this. The temptation of this message, here's what it was at the end of our conversation. The temptation of the message was to say, let's pray and tell everybody, get out of your pit. I don't know that that's the word of the Lord. Here's what is the word of the Lord. Look to God right now. 
Quit looking inward. Quit looking around. Look up and choose right now that you're going to run to him. Let him decide what's going to happen with your pit. Let him decide what you're going to do with the circumstances that are all around you. Here's how, I got a minute, 21 seconds. Let me do this. If you're in a pit, any kind of pit whatsoever, last six weeks, that's all we've talked about. And you just say, man, I need God. How about I'll leave it there, very generic. I need God. Put your hand up. It's very brave right now. Very public and very brave. Look around the room. A lot of pits, a lot of places, a lot of people, a lot of it. Okay. Close your eyes, but keep your hands up. Father, here's what we choose to do. We choose right now that if the Son has made us free, we do get to be free. We do get to choose right now what goes on. And God, everyone in this room looks to you. Everyone in this room right now, God, who raises their hand and said, I need God. They need you to enter into their lives at the level that they're experiencing that pit. God, whether it be a physical pit, a spiritual pit. God, if it's emotional, I don't know. Lord, if it's the pit that someone pushed them into, one that they did to themselves, or one that they fell into unaware. Whatever it would be right now, God, I cry out to you that as people look to you, do what you said you would do. Incline your ear to us. Take us out of the pit. Lord, if you're developing things right now, if whatever you're doing, here's what we believe. You take what was meant for evil and use it for good in our lives. You take what the devil intended to destroy us. And you use it, God, to defeat him, to mock him, but ultimately to make us what you've called us to be. I ask right now, right now, have your way in our lives. God, every man, every woman, every person who seriously right now is confronted with a very real pit and needs a very real Savior, do what only you can do. Hear us. Help us. Deliver us. However you're hearing this right now, any of our campuses, live streaming it, listening via the podcast, the DVD, I want you to know God, right now, personally, it's not a generic message to a lot of churches. He personally wants to speak to you. And as you just open your heart to him right now, allow his mercy and his goodness allow his grace his favor be the thing that you hear and the thing that you see right now. God, settle upon your people. Draw them to yourself. Here's just the things that I pray for real quick. If failure's been the thing that's defining you, the Lord would set you free from that tonight. If you go, okay, I want to be set free from it. I just need God to touch my mind. It won't work that way. The way you're set free from failure is to find your identity in Christ. It is not to find identity in success. You'll just end up on a different branch of the wrong tree. Find your identity in Christ tonight. That simple scripture that I read to you, we love him because he first loved us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is the pursuer of all relationship with you? Do you believe that God right now knows everything about you? 
and he loves you anyway. Do you believe that he loves us, not based on what we do, but based on who he is? It's the foundation of being set free from being defined by failure. If you struggle with his grace and mercy, if legalism is the thing that defines you, if performance is what drives you, if you just can't, you wish that it was what I said, but somehow in your mind, you're just led to believe, yeah, I know God has mercy, but, but, We are praying for you that you would really experience the grace and mercy of God and that your relationship with Him would become a relationship of freedom and life. A relationship that you enjoy. A relationship that you look forward to. I'll just pray it that way. If you struggle with that performance issue, that you would know His grace and mercy and His approval of your life. Last but not least, I just pray directly, don't waste a good prison sentence. And as contradictory as that may sound to everything that you want to do, the truth of the matter is, we don't get to pick and choose what happens to us. We get to pick and choose what we do with what happens to us. And if you find yourself going through it right now, and difficulty seems to be all around you, Friend, I encourage you tonight, do exactly what these guys did. Turn to God and cry out to Him. Worship Him in spite of it. Stop whining, stop complaining. It won't help you. It won't speed up the pit. It will in fact, it'll make it deeper. Begin to cry out and worship to Him. Begin to understand right now that you're not a slave, you haven't lost control. You get to choose right now, and you want God to deliver you. That's what you're aiming for. Pray that over all of our campuses. Pray that over all of our people, everyone who will hear this message. I ask the Holy Spirit make that clear to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May have you go ahead and stand to your feet, if you will. Our worship pastors will take us into this time of communion, prayer, worship. Up behind me on all of your screens you'll find how you respond during this time and so when you read that and you see anything that the Holy Spirit would impress upon you in order to respond to God don't hesitate to take time to respond right now and allow the Holy Spirit to just minister to you before you leave give God a few minutes so that this can be really done in your heart done in a way that's real and for sure this is what's really important for sure if anything I said really ministered to you and you're like, I want the Lord to do that for me. Before you leave here, take time to allow God to work that in your heart. The reason we put all of this on the end of the service is we believe when we respond to what God is saying, the outcome for us is that God ends up showing us how He wants to do these things in us. How to bring us out of a pit. How we're to worship Him. What it is that we don't want to just go, okay, I got that knowledge. We want it to be a reality in our hearts. So before you just take off, allow the Holy Spirit to teach you right now and to show you something to make this solid in your life. I pray in Christ's name.